Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you how you orchestrated things in our lives so that we would end up in your house today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is not something that we just take a look at at one day of the week. But Lord, it is our food. It is our sustenance. It is something that we breathe in and take in every day of the week. We thank you for how accessible it is for us in this country. And we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world where that is not the case. We pray that you would fill them with, with knowledge of your word through your Holy Spirit and that you would, through some means, provide a way for them to get their hands on it. We thank you that it is power. It's not just a book, but it is power. It is your power going forth, invading our lives and making changes. We thank you that we are in the daily transformation and your project, your work will be made perfect, will be completed someday when you return for us and you will, you will remain faithful to that in our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember from last week, I showed you a picture of the dress, the social media phenomenon that happened a few years back, where depending on who was looking at it, either had a blue, blue and black combination or a white and gold combination. Similarly, this week, I want to show you a couple of optical illusions. For the first one, when I start the video, I want you to focus on the cross in the middle of the circle. All right? And when I start the video, You'll, you'll see something start to happen. Here we go. Focus your eyes on that cross in the middle. What do you see start to go around? A green dot, right? That doesn't, that's actually not there. It's only the, the pink dots are disappearing for a second. Your brain is filling in that green dot. And it's a, it's a, uh, a, a phenomenon known as creating an after image. That green dot is not actually there. It's just your brain is filling that in. For the second one, what I want you to do is just focus and stare at the dot in the middle of this guy's nose. All right, you see that? Looks like a giant zit. I want you to stare at that, at that dot in the middle of his nose for 10 seconds, then immediately bring your eyes over to the white section and blink several times. And what do you see? It in the actual color of the photographs. You, what we see here is the negative, and then when you, when you do this, uh, you start to see what it looks like in its actual color. Your brain automatically recreated the positive image of the negative it was shown, even without consciously seeing it. You see, Paul is going to reveal something to the Corinthians in our passage today. He's going to reveal that they've been deceived. And what they think and see and understand is going on is not at all what's really going on. They've been deceived into not being aware of what's actually going on in reality all around them. And like last week, this message will be a little bit longer than the others, but this topic is far too important. Before Paul gets into this revelation, similar to last week, he's going to set up the foundation to his revelation first. And the first point of that is the departure. We talked last week about the universal method for dealing with everyday temptations. What is it not? It's not to fight it. That's not the universal method. It's not to close your eyes real tightly and try not to think about it. 
It's not to try hard not to do it. It's none of those things. What is the one simple method for dealing with everyday temptations? Look for the escape hatch, right? That's what we read in our passage last week. We read last week that temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, He will show you a way out. He'll provide an escape hatch so that you can endure it and not fall to it. There will always, always, always be an escape hatch, a departure from the situation. The problem is that we don't focus on looking for it. That's why we always fall to it. We kind of just half-heartedly resist it and end up failing. I can guarantee you that you will fail every single time unless you look for this escape hatch. You have to look for it. Just leave the situation. Don't put yourself into situations where you know temptation will be present. It doesn't matter what it looks like to other people or how awkward or dumb looking or embarrassing it is. It doesn't matter what anybody whispers about you behind your back because the only one whose opinion matters is God. And He will always be pleased when we look for the escape hatch and take it. The first safeguard against temptations is knowing how seriously God takes sin. The first safeguard against temptations is knowing you open yourself up to discipline from Almighty God because of how much He loves you and, his, and you being His child. Again, His goal is not your happiness and comfort. I'm sorry to tell you that. The Christian life is not all about happiness and comfort. His goal, God's goal, is your spiritual maturity and being made more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And so it's no, it's no surprise that Paul further clarifies that method of looking for that escape hatch from temptation by simply saying next in 1 Corinthians chapter, nine, verse four, uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 14, if you want to turn there with me, if you, brought, if you didn't bring your Bible, there should be one located in a pew in front of you, uh, please also turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, he just flat out says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. Run away from it. In the context that Paul is writing in, like we've been referencing for quite a while, there are more well-to-do Christians in the Corinthian church who are taking their Christian liberty from Jewish dietary laws and flaunting it in everybody else's face. They were openly going to pagan temple celebrations and consuming meat that had been dedicated and sacrificed to idols. They thought, well, since the pagan deities these idols represent don't exist, therefore rendering the idols meaningless, why shouldn't we go attend these celebrations and eat that meat? Because it doesn't matter. The problem was that many of their brothers and sisters had come out of that background. And to them, it did matter. Going to those celebrations and eating that meat would automatically make their minds connect with the past that Jesus had saved them from. To them, taking part in any of that would be sin, since they would be indulging in something they were mentally connecting to their pagan past. Paul has been rebuking those who saw no problem with it, saying, yes, 
those deities don't exist and therefore the idols are meaningless. But you need to place brotherly love for the spiritual growth of your brothers and sisters ahead of any rights you're afforded by biblical Christianity. And now Paul extends that and reveals to them what's really going on under the surface. Not the so-called reality of the existence... Uh, uh, no, the so-called reality of the existence of those pagan deities, they did not exist. But there's something much more dangerous going on under the surface than even these pagan deities. Because of that, the entire church needed to flee from anything that was connected to worshiping pagan deities in any way. You see, they weren't supposed to see how close they could get to idolatry without actually being guilty of indulging in it. They were to flee from anything connected to it. Instead of seeing how close they could get, Paul wanted them to focus on how far away they could get from it. Connecting back with our everyday temptations, we are not to focus on how close we can get to falling into a temptation without actually falling to it. We should be staying as far away from those types of situations and environments. That connects us back to last week's discussion of putting up safeguards so we don't even get close to the temptations we, we struggle with. What we should fo be focused on is, instead is putting ourselves in situations that are glorifying to God. I'm not saying to stop hanging out with people who aren't Christians. How are they going to know about Jesus, how are they going to see Jesus in our lives and hear about him from our mouths if we don't do that? What I am saying is that if they're being more of an influence on your behavior and the difference between falling to a temptation you know you struggle with, then, then you being an influence on them, something needs to change. Remember, like we talked about last week, Paul wrote elsewhere, don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. He couldn't be any clearer than that. So we talked about the departure, how to depart from temptation. Look for the escape hatch. That was a brief review from last week. Secondly, we're going to take a look at doctrine. Paul gets into the theological foundation for his revelation of what's really going on under the surface of so-called reality next in verses 15 through 17. He says, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As noted by one biblical scholar, these verses are pointing out that partaking in communion connects us in a real spiritual way, both to Jesus in remembrance of him, but also to each other as fellow members of his body. Communion is one powerful way for them to all be spiritually connected through the consumption of food and drink. Now, keep that in mind. Paul further backs up what he's trying to get across by bringing up an Old Testament illustration again. Even though it was the Israelite priests who presented the sacrifices, the entire nation of Israel shared in that spiritual connection both to God and to each other as fellow members of that community. The sacrifices didn't just cover those making them, they covered everyone in the nation. 
Paul's point that he extends that line of thinking into was what those Corinthians were connecting themselves to the pagan temple celebrations and consuming the food and drink tied to those celebrations, what they were really doing. And here's where Paul reveals what is really going on behind the scenes of what they think their reality is. Verse 18 is what I was talking about when he says, Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Now Paul reveals this revelation. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Of course not. No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. They're pretty powerful words, aren't they? Paul is saying, no, again, I'm not breathing life into what the pagans believe in. No, their pagan deities do not exist. And the idols that represent them are meaningless. But that's not the ultimate point. No, they're not actually sacrificing anything to deities named Jupiter or Venus or Luna. What they are actually sacrificing in celebration to are demons, which is something so much more dangerous than that. That's why I'm telling you to flee from it, to flee from any pagan celebration connected to that. You simply cannot be spiritually connected to Christ and your brothers and sisters and also be spiritually connected to demons and those who worship them. This is not politically correct at all. I'm warning you. The other religions of the world that claim to worship other deities can name off any one of them. They're not actually worshiping any of these demons or any of these deities. What they're actually worshiping, we can pull directly out of the text here, are demons, demonic forces connected with those deities and manifesting themselves in that way. Talk about being to the point and not pulling any punches, right? And to be even more to the point, Paul gives a strong warning to those who didn't see any problem with that. Verse 22, Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He is, are we? That's a very strong warning, isn't it? Do you really want to provoke Almighty God even as His child? Do you really want to test who's stronger? Who here wants to see if they're stronger than God? I don't think anybody here would willingly raise their hand for that. You are the creator of the universe. There couldn't be any clearer of a warning here. Who here in sound mind really wants to provoke Almighty God and see who's stronger? Challenge him to a, a, a thumb war or something. I can guarantee, I can guarantee you who's going to win. The obvious, reason, the, the obvious response is no. But how many Christians... Because Paul is writing to Christians here. How many Christians provoke God? Either out of ignorance or because they think it's not really a big deal to have connections to the demonic realm. I've said this before, not too long ago, a couple months ago. 
but I want to revisit it again because it's so prevalent in our society and culture and so many believers walk around this world not even thinking about it. There are many, many things that society is perfectly cool with, messing around with, and they are actually deceptive cover-ups for demonic activity. And that's why I want to bring it up because Paul tells uh, the, the Corinthians, I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters. Anything having to do with astrology, such as horoscopes, palm reading, fortune telling, tarot card reading, or anything similar to that, is actually demonic in its source and power, no matter how harmless it seems from the outside. Flee from it, as Paul says. Have nothing to do with it as a child of God. Nothing and no one holds the key to the future but God Himself. No one can reveal anything about the future to you but God. Everything else is either flat-out deception or is demonically influenced. Likewise, no one can talk to the dead. No one can bring you a message from a dead loved one. That is either flat-out deception or demonically influenced. Any ghost experience, sighting, or interaction is in connection with demons and is distracting you from the truth of the gospel. Do not indulge in books or TV shows that are all about ghost hunting for like the pagan idols. These are not explorations for ghosts. These are really explorations for demons, and do you really want to find one? Scripture is clear, and because, and I want to cover this real quick because there's a lot of people don't know about this. Scripture is clear that we are no longer in our earthly bodies, well, that when we are no longer in our earthly bodies, our souls immediate, immediately go to one of two places. Immediately. There is no limbo, there is no purgatory, there is no middle ground. No one can return to our world in spirit form, but either immediately goes to the presence of Christ with rejoicing or to a place of punishment. Paul writes, So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident and we would be rather be away from these earthly bodies, and I put this emphasis, for then we will be at home with the Lord. If you're not in your earthly body, you are at home with the Lord. Paul also tells the Philippians, for to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. This is Paul being torn between these two things. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which he's directly connecting to death, which would be far better for me. Jesus tells the thief on the cross next to him, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. In the book of Hebrews, the author says that when we come together and worship as the body of Christ, Spiritually, what we're doing is spiritually entering heaven and joining the worship of countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. P 
picture this. Right now, this is what's happening. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits, the souls of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people. Isn't that an incredible, amazing thought? Kind of makes you want to come to church every Sunday, doesn't it? This scripture tells us that every time we join together in worship with our brothers and sisters, this is what we join up with. That's really awesome. We spiritually enter heaven and join up with the myriads of angels and the souls of those believers who have gone on before us to worship the triune God together as one. In connection with unbelievers who die, Jesus tells a story about a man who died without faith in the messianic promises and he didn't repent of his sins. He lived in luxury in this earthly life and never repented of his sins. There was also a poor man named Lazarus who suffered in his earthly life, but had repented of his sins in light of the messianic promises. He also died. Jesus describes what happened to that, what happens to them upon their death. And he says, Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. This isn't a party place. What do we read? There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. That's a tough doctrine to wrap our human minds around. How could a loving God do that? What we have to remember is that God is perfect in all of his attributes. Amen? If he is perfect in his love... And in his holiness, what that also means is that he is also perfect in his justice. Scripture describes us as enemies of God before we put our faith in Jesus for salvation. What this directs our hearts and minds to, therefore, is not to say, how could a loving God do that? But to be incredibly thankful and grateful and give glory to God for any mercy and any grace that He has had towards us and providing a way for us not to have to experience that when we die and to trust Him with the outcome of those who rejected that mercy. Except in very rare rare occasions, we cannot pinpoint and say somebody was definitely 100% not a believer when they took their last breath. Because we don't know what the imminence of death does to a person. That might drive them, that might be the very last thing they needed to finally put their faith and trust in Jesus. We don't know. We can trust God with that. He is the judge. When Jesus returns at the point of the rapture, those who had accepted Jesus as Savior and King, their souls that had been with Jesus all this time will be reunited with their resurrected bodies and they will continue to be with Jesus forever, entering the millennial kingdom with him in their glorified bodies and then entering New Jerusalem after that. For unbelievers, at some point, their bodies will also be reunited with their souls that had been in torment to stand before the judgment throne. 
From there, they will be banished to eternal punishment in a world where God's presence is not. It's scary. It's meant to be scary. I know this is not an easy topic to discuss, and it's not a cavalier topic, but it's the doctrinal truth of death in Scripture. Either way, my point is that every soul goes to one of two places upon earthly death. They cannot return as spirits roaming the earth, and as such, any so-called ghost activity must be attributed to demonic activity and must be fleed from, must be stayed away from. You might think I'm going overboard, but I would go so far as to recommend staying away from most horror movies. Most of them revel in the demonic world. Ouija boards are obvious. They're connected to outright communication with the demonic realm. Have nothing to do with anything having to do with any of this demonic activity. I implore you, brothers and sisters, their master, our enemy, is referenced in Scripture as the father of lies, and he will stop at nothing to scare and distract people from the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth found in God's word. Do not underestimate what the enemy of your soul will use to distract you from the truth. Flee from it. <laughs> if you need any more reasoning, do not provoke Almighty God with any of it. As Paul told the Corinthians in verse 22, have nothing to do with it as a child of God. We have plenty to intrigue and fascinate us about Almighty God without playing around with any of that other stuff anyway. You're not missing out on anything other than opening yourself up to the enemy's spiritual oppression. The only thing that will come out of messing around with any of the aforementioned deceptions is you opening the door up to the demonic world, and I'm sure none of us here wants to actually do that. We talked about the departure, we talked about the doctrine, mostly the doctrine of death, but also the doctrine of what's really going on under the surface. Thirdly, we're going to talk about the deceptive schemes. As deceptive as all of that is, the enemy in general uses an even greater deception. And that is especially for believers to forget all about the dark kingdom and forget that we're constantly in a spiritual battle and that he will stop at nothing to destroy our lives. The easiest way to win the war is convince the other side that you don't actually exist or to forget about you. The best strategy Satan has is to, defeat, is to deceive us into not even thinking about the existence and goal of that kingdom. If we're unaware of its existence and its goal, or keep forgetting about it because we like to be distracted by all the, all the other things of this world, he can throw anything he wants at our marriages, he can throw anything he wants at our families, and he can throw anything he wants at our reputations. Just like how the Corinthians were completely unaware of what they were really joining into when they participated in these pagan temple celebrations. And we're deceived into thinking it was just something harmless that didn't mean anything. We're often deceived into being unaware of the military strategies and weapons an entire kingdom of darkness uses towards us. We just don't think about it. Remember this oft-forgotten truth. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. 
It's not just what we see. We're fighting against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world. There's a hierarchy going on here, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. When Lucifer was kicked out of heaven, how many fallen angels were also kicked out down to our world? Anybody have a specific number? No. (laughs) Only that it was a, a third of whatever angels resided in heaven. Now, going back to what we just talked about in the book of Hebrews, where it talks about countless angels worshiping God, you take a third of something that's so innumerable to be able to be counted, and that's a ton of beings. All across this world, too many to count. They have their own hierarchy of powerful darkness, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Their goal, to make sure the gospel of Jesus Christ goes no further than it already has, and to destroy the lives of those who have already committed themselves to it. That's the only goal of this kingdom. That's not something I've come up with. We read elsewhere, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He has one goal, destruction. Very often the devouring is not right in your face either. It's subtle. It's one deception after another of not looking for that escape hatch with every temptation, falling to those temptations, making one compromise after another, and before you know it, you're left with nothing but a heap of ashes. These attacks will, are, are very often subtle ones that if you're not staying alert, you're not staying aware of this kingdom set against you, you will cave to them without even thinking about them. That's one of the enemy's favorite tactics. Scripture even points that right out to us as well to remind us of their ever-present danger. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies or schemes. The word for strategies here means sneaky and crafty strategies. They're subtle. They're meant to take you by surprise. These subtle and sneaky schemes take on all kinds of different forms. I want to meddle a little bit. Tell me these don't sound familiar at all to us. All right? Tell me I'm not making all this up. Discontentment. Bitterness. Resentment. Unforgiveness. Desire for revenge. Trash-talking someone behind their back no matter what kind of spin of, oh, I'm concerned about them on it. Self-centeredness, whether it be in your marriage, your family, or just in general. Lusting after anyone you're not married to, whether it be a stranger's picture or video on the Internet or someone you know. Disrespect for authority, whether it be in the family structure, civil, or church. Not showing Jesus' love towards people based on race, ethnicity, background, identity, or past. Celebrating lifestyles and behavior that are blatantly against the Bible's teaching. Ungratefulness for what God has given to you. 
not being a good steward of what God has entrusted to your care, indulging your fear and anxiety about any given situation, or simply not trusting God's plan with something. Can I get a witness? We must be aware of what the enemy is constantly trying to deceive us of being unaware of, and that's the existence and barrage of the attacks of the kingdom of darkness towards our lives and our families. However, while we must be aware of these attacks, especially the more subtle ones, what's one thing we can always remember? We don't need to fear these attacks. We don't need to fear them. The Apostle John writes, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. If you have not repented of your sins, you have not accepted Jesus' sacrifice on on your behalf and His resurrection to give you new spiritual life, and you have not recognized Him as your King for the rest of your life, you do have much to fear. You have no protections against being tossed to and fro with every strategy and scheme of the enemy. For you do not have the Holy Spirit to guide you and to open your eyes to God's truth. And at the end of it all, if you continue to reject the grace and mercy of God in providing a way to reconciliation with himself through personal identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus, you will enter into the place of of eternal torment. I'm glad it's so silent in here because it's something to always think about. And for those of us who have made that decision, have given our lives to Jesus, we have much to be grateful for. Amen? I say all of this to shake us up. I hope you feel shaken up. I feel shaken up. Because it's to remind us that what we see is not ultimately the reality of what's actually going on all around us in the unseen world. There are powerful spiritual forces at work all around us in this world. For those of us who are believers in Jesus, this is something to always be on guard against, but nothing to be feared, because we have Jesus. He's already claimed victory over them. We will never be overtaken by the forces of darkness if we run to God as our fortress of safety. His Holy Spirit within us will guide us, convict us, and protect us. As we live out the rest of our lives in the every minute of every day recognition of this spiritual war we're always in and the kingdom of darkness that has its fiery arrows aimed directly at us, we are driven to take the everyday putting on of the armor of God. There's no other way to go through this life. Ephesians 6, Paul writes, Therefore put on every piece... Don't neglect any piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace 
that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Finally, none of us is in this war alone. You're not a lone ranger. We fight alongside our brothers and sisters. There's a very important point to that. We fight alongside our brothers and sisters. Let us all remember that we're all on the same team and that we're all in this war together with Jesus, our warrior, fighting these battles for us. This is how we do battle. If Jesus is fighting the battles for us, how are we to do battle? This is how we do battle. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. I want to show you the reference here. You see how this, ver- this section ends with verse 17? This is the very next verse. This is in direct context to the spiritual warfare Paul just wrote about. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Why? Because the enemy is out to destroy you at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers. Why? Because we're all on the same side. We're all in this together for all believers everywhere. Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived by anything the enemy throws at you. Do not be deceived into thinking his schemes are harmless. Always be alert. Always be aware. Look for the escape hatch in every temptation. Always put on the full armor of God as soon as you wake up each day. And pray. Pray, brothers and sisters. Pray for God's victory in each of our battles. And pray for each other as we all face this war together as one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for once again another tough but incredibly important message that we all needed to hear. I pray that we're all shaken up. I pray that this drives us to run to you as our fortress of safety. Lord, if any one of us has been messing around with anything in connection with the enemy, I pray that we would give that up right this second. And Lord, I pray that you would slam that door to the demonic realm shut so that nothing can get through. Lord, this is far too important. I pray that if there's anyone who struggles with everyday temptations on an everyday basis, that you would give them the power to look for that escape hatch. And Lord, I pray that if any of us are struggling with those subtle attacks, that whole list that we read through, Lord, I pray that we would give that to you. Lord, we would recognize what it is, give that to you, repent of anything that needs to be repented of, seek your forgiveness, and walk in your power. Lord, I pray that we would constantly be aware of this dark kingdom, these powerful spiritual forces at work in this world, that we would stand guard against them, and that we would have the peace and comfort of the Lord Jesus Christ guard our hearts and minds against them as well. Lord, we thank you that we have nothing to fear. We thank you that you have already defeated our enemy. We thank you that you will return for us one day, whether or not our our souls go to be with you before that point. 
We thank you that we will never lose you. We thank you that whether we leave this earth in death or whether we leave it in rapture, we will always be with you. We thank you for that eternal truth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.